0: Our gospel today is from Luke chapter 12 as we continue in our study of Luke's gospel. Hear now God's holy word. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark Will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear, in the inner rooms, will be proclaimed on the housetops. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father, we praise you and we give you thanks for your holy word, and we ask that we might not simply hear it today, but that it might penetrate our hearts, that it might convict us, that it might uh, that it, that it might change us and transform us. That this time in and under your word might be productive and fruitful. So we praise you and we ask you to send us your Holy Spirit to, uh, to do this good work in us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. People of God, fear is a powerful motivator. There may be many things that motivate us and propel us to action. Some of us may be motivated by money or motivated by a sense of purpose. We're motivated by the idea of having influence and helping or we're motivated when other people appreciate what we do. Some act of love or compassion that you know people are really going to appreciate. These are all, these are all motivators and they're all good ones, but fear taps into something deep within us that generates the most immediate visceral response. You can get uh, a, an immediate response or a me- immediate reaction out of fear like no other motivator. Fear makes us acutely uncomfortable and fear evokes that panicked fight or flight response, that That doesn't always follow the best decision-making skills as we scramble to get back to a comfortable place. When we are afraid, we want to be as comfortable as quickly as possible. So we're constantly battling so many different fears. We are afraid of pain and afraid of disease. We're afraid of being hurt emotionally. We're afraid of being abandoned. We're afraid of loneliness. We're afraid of failure. We have a fear of not being accepted or appreciated by other people. We are afraid of missing out on an opportunity. We're afraid of the unknown, afraid of the future. And most of all, uh, above all things, we're afraid of death, which combines many of those fears. Which is why advertising agencies and governments are always using fear as a motivator. They are, will, will paint a picture. They'll articulate a set of circumstances that evoke anxiety and worry and stress. And then, very helpfully, they'll paint a solution. They'll present a solution that takes our hand and leads us through that fight or flight scenario, out of that into a very comfortable place, back to our comfort zone. So, so they give us this very terrifying, this, this horrible thing, but then they say, but trust us, trust, trust our tires, trust our, our life insurance, trust our burglar alarm system, you know, trust Crest Toothpaste, trust, trust Right Guard, whatever, trust our legislation, trust this newest invasion into your privacy, trust this restriction on your liberty, trust us, take our hand, we can help you find your way back to your comfort place, your happy place. And the thing that takes your hand and the thing that guides you is your savior. What what reaches and holds your hand, that, that, that thing you rely on to make everything better, becomes your God. Of course, that's what marketers and legislators and others want. They want you to trust in them. They want you to take their hand and put your confidence in them and trust them alone. But as we've seen there's so many problems with motivating people this way there's a problem with motivating people by fear alone one one major problem with using fear as a motivator, is that when there are always alarms going off, nobody pays attention to them anymore. You remember in the late 80s, maybe when cars started to have uh, alarms installed on them, and anytime an alarm went off, it's like, oh, somebody's stealing a car. Now if you hear an alarm going off, it's like, eh, that guy didn't know how to unlock his car. I mean, we, we don't pay attention to alarms at all anymore, and that's when when there are always alarms going off, nobody pays attention. Constant alarmism has diminishing returns, and we grow dull, so that when there is a real threat, when there's really something significant to be concerned about, no one's listening anymore. We've, we've heard the panic, we've heard the fear, we've heard the alarms, and we're not listening, we're not buying it anymore. Another defect of, of motivation by fear is that fear often paralyzes. Some people, when afraid, don't reach out to take a hand to go to safety. They become paralyzed. They turn into statues and shut down when they're afraid, and they don't do anything. When you pair fear with doubt, it destroys motivation. It kills any kind of forward progress. Am I, if, I, if I'm afraid, and I don't have any faith in a kind and loving Heavenly Father who's going to be the one to take my hand and, and lead me through this if I don't have that, then I'm frozen. I can't do anything. I'm I'm dead in the water. So fear paralyzes. So in this next section of Luke's gospel, the Savior spends a great deal of time addressing the people's fears and the problem of worry and anxiety that was prevalent for them and as much as it is for us today. As we saw last week in our study, the opposition to Jesus is intensifying. The closer he gets to Jerusalem, the the opposition is ramping up, and it's only gonna get more serious. At the end of chapter 11, the scribes and Pharisees are are, are full of threats and accusation. And, And Jesus knows that persecution for him and his people is coming. And behind that, greater tribulation for Israel is coming, as God is going to judge and destroy the old world of the the old covenant. and He's going to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. So the situations that are coming their way, Jesus knows what's coming. These situations are going to be less comfortable, more painful, more troublesome, and he wants his people, his disciples, to be prepared for what is coming. He knows that persecution is coming, and he doesn't want them to be surprised, and he doesn't want them to fear. He doesn't want them to panic. He doesn't want them to be out of their minds. And he doesn't want them hanging on to the old world as a safety, as, as, as holding on to that hand as if that's what's going to bring them through it. He doesn't want them to be paralyzed by fear either. And it's much the very same way for us. It feels like we've gotten a short reprieve in our culture from persecution. If you were to ask me this question last year, is persecution headed our way? Well, obviously, yes. It does look like we are bound for persecution. They start with the florists and they start with the, the wedding cake bakers, but we're right behind it. And and they're coming and they're not gonna be happy with anybody who believes the Bible. They're not gonna be happy with anybody who trusts the Lord Jesus. I mean, that's just the way it's gonna be. But we've gotten a reprieve, it feels like. We've gotten a short window That we don't, obviously, we don't deserve as a nation a a window where it feels like judgment is reserved. But if there hasn't been repentance, if there hasn't been any kind of real evidence of of revival or reformation, that that means judgment is still coming. And we we have to be ready and not be naive and be ready to stand fast without fear. And that's the same kind of message that Jesus is is preaching to his disciples. You need to be ready for what's coming, know that it's coming, and be able to stand fast against this persecution that's headed your way. Israel, at the time when Jesus comes, Israel is a neurotic and anxious nation. Referring again back to what we read last week, this controversy about hand-washing. They are compulsively obsessing over over all these little things, tithing out of their spice rack, all these petty particulars about purity rituals, keeping themselves clean from an increasingly dirty world, inventing new regulations. And in all of this anxiety, they've become idolaters. They're trusting in their purity. They're trusting in their national identity as the thing that's gonna take their hand and lead them to safety. But they're not delighting in the God of creation. They're not delighting in, in uh, God's providence as, and, and him as the source of their salvation. So then Jesus addresses their fear and anxiety straight on. After dinner with the Pharisee, we read last week, we find him the next day or a few days later surrounded by so many people that they're stepping on each other. Luke says the people are trampling one another to get to Jesus. And Jesus then finds this opportunity to address them and and address their fears. And he hits several of them. The first one he takes on is this fear of man, which leads to being concerned only by Uh, being concerned with with appearances, being concerned and and focused only on externals. I read this just a second ago, but we're going to read about half of this chapter. So let me pick up and read what Jesus said again. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you 've spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you 've spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. what is he what is he addressing there? This hypocrisy of the uh, the Pharisees, this leaven of the Pharisees he says under under the tyranny of legalism, you develop this neurosis, this constant fear that everyone is watching you that that everyone is really concerned about what you're doing and and how you're doing it. And and so uh, even more important than being holy uh, becomes the the, uh, sense of appearing holy. I I don't really care about whether or not you are holy or righteous, just so long as you appear holy. So, So under this regime, under this tyranny of legalism, if you do something charitable, you've gotta make sure everybody sees that you've done something charitable. If you pray on the street, you have gotta be sure that everybody hears you pray. And if you fast, you don't want anybody to miss this. You wanna make sure everybody knows, boy, he's fasting, He he's really taking this, this seriously. Look at him, look at his appearance, look how he's fasting. If you do something good or noble, you have to point it out. You have to to post it on Facebook. You have to let everybody know that you're doing something good and noble and righteous and holy. You have to craft this public persona of perfection so that everyone can see how clean the outside of the dish is and acknowledge you for it and tell you how clean it is. You never broadcast the the parts that are unclean. You don't don't broadcast the dirty inside of the dish, the parts you're ashamed of. And so Jesus says to his disciples, he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. The Bible uses leaven both as an example of something good and and something bad at, at different points. Uh, leaven is something that grows. Leaven permeates bread slowly but constantly until the whole loaf is leavened. And that's the way the kingdom grows in the world. But here, uh, this, is, this is leaven in the bad sense. Jesus says this insidious leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Oh, what's so, what's so uh, nefarious and evil and wicked about, about the, uh, the leaven that Jesus is talking about, this, this hypocrisy? Well, the work of the hypocrite is to keep things concealed, to keep all the ugly things out of sight and make sure uh, by, by maneuvering and skillfully displaying parts of his life, showing that only, only the right things are exposed. Only the, only the right things, the things I want you to see, those are the only things you'll ever see. And the things that I don't want you to see are kept hidden. But Jesus warns them, inevitably, the hidden things are gonna be revealed. Inevitably. The things that you cover up are going to be exposed. Jesus says everything will come to light. The things that you whispered are going to be shouted from the rooftops. Now, even this has a double meaning, I think. Not only will the shameful things be revealed, the shameful secrets, but so will the secrets of the kingdom. The things that they can only talk about now in whispers, the things that Jesus can only talk about in parables, these things too are going to be shouted from the rooftops and be proclaimed. So Jesus says, you know what, Don't, don't imitate the Pharisees at all. Don't imitate their hypocrisy because everything that they're trying to keep hidden will one day be exposed. So here's the first thing you can scratch off your list. When you follow Jesus faithfully, here's the fear that you can take off the list. Fear of other people's expectations. Fear of other people's opinions. Fear of failure to meet the world's definitions of success or respect or acceptance. This is, this is what has really stripped the church of her power and authority over the past century or so. A church in the West and especially American churches have wanted so desperately for the world to know we're just like you. We're okay. We share the same values that you share. We're all right. Yeah, world, I understand you don't take marriage seriously. Well, well, you know what? We kind of don't either. We don't take it seriously. And and you like to confuse the purpose of man and woman. Well, you know what? We're okay with that too. We we kind of like to mess that up and we kind of like to to muddle that. We don't want to take that seriously. And we want to go along with all of the things you go along with. You think the Bible is 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 kind of confusing and and contradictory. Well, you know what? We really don't believe the Bible either. The church, over the past 150 years or so in the West, the church has been like this this kid on the playground who doesn't have any friends but so desperately wants to be liked by the cool kids. Play with me, love me, I'll do anything. What can I get do to get your attention? Oh, you want me to eat a bug? I'll eat a bug. Watch me. And he thinks he's really making friends but everybody else is just laughing at him because of how ridiculous he's being. The, and this is the church, the church for fear of of appearing not with it uh, of of appearing out of touch or out of date she has tried to to get the world to like her she has tried to get the world to respect her and it has has ended in much less power much less influence much less much less authority in in the world because we've accepted the lies of the deceiver. We've bought into the leaven of the Pharisees, this this externalism and this, um, this, this keeping up appearances stuff. Jesus says, beware of this. And right on the heels of that, he addresses the fear of persecution. Verse four, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear, fear him, who after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. What Satan wants you to fear and what the persecutor wants you to fear above all things is death. He wants you to think that death is the worst thing that can happen to you. And so often when you're faithful to God to do what God says you come into situations where it feels like you're going to die. But maybe not in our culture right now are we under threat of physical death, but but we might die we might die professionally. We might die relationally to other people. We our, our reputation might die. And we think that's the worst thing that can happen. We are so afraid of death and we have forgotten that the only way to glory And the only way to influence is death. It's the only way you get anywhere in the economy of God's world. Death is the only way to glory. Remember Joseph who ends up second in command of all of Egypt. How How did he get there? Well, he had to die, didn't he? He had to go down into the prison He had to be accused of something he was not guilty of before he was resurrected to to greater glory and greater power. Daniel, same thing happened for him. Daniel, uh, how did he end up second in command of the whole world? Well, he had to go into death. He had to go into the lion's den. We are afraid of death, but it's the only way. It's the only way to glory. And Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. That's all they can do. All they can do is kill you. That's that's the worst they can do. And they think that's the worst thing. And that's not the worst thing that can happen. Jesus says, rather fear him who has the power to cast you into hell. Fear him. Now, some commentators have said Jesus is talking about Satan there. Satan is the one you should fear who can cast you into hell. But Satan doesn't have that authority. Satan uh, is is the Bible never tells us to fear Satan. Jesus doesn't tell us to fear Satan. We oppose Satan. We crush his head, but we don't fear him. And the only one we're ever commanded to fear is God. God is the one who can cast us into eternal judgment. We fear him, and this is the only proper fear. The fear of God is not an anxious fear. It's not a panicky fear. It's not a fight or flight kind of fear. It's not a distressful fear, but a reverence, a, a holy fear that, that confesses that God is ultimately the only one who holds our lives in his hand. We know that God alone will do what he says. He has the authority over our lives and our eternities. He's the only one we fear in any sense. Don't fear the persecutor, fear the Lord, Jesus says. Anytime I think about this um, issue of fear, and I might have used this illustration once or twice before, but it's the best one I can think of. How is fear of the Lord a good thing and fear of all these other things a bad thing? Uh, when my daughter was really little and I was learning how to be a father and play with a little girl, I would scare her. I would make ugly faces and I would and come around the corner and scare her and inevitably she would cry and run to me. <laughs> now I'm the scary guy, right? I'm the one who bared his teeth. I'm the one who made the ugly face and she runs, she runs to me for comfort. Why? Because she knows I'm her father. So was her fear real? Well, you know, I was evoking it, and I'm not a perfect father like God the Father is. But there is, when God bears his teeth, what is the right response? When God, when God shows his displeasure, what is the proper response? You run, you run to him for comfort. That's the only, that's the only kind of fear that is, that is acceptable and encouraged in the Bible. Fear of God, fear of the one who both uh, judges and redeems, the one who... Uh, can only, only the the one who can only comfort you, the only one who can. And so Jesus follows this up with a reminder of how deeply and compassionately God cares for you. He says, aren't five sparrows sold for two cents? Uh, They're two copper pennies, uh, pretty cheap. They're, they're, clean birds so they could be eaten so you could buy five sparrows and maybe make a lunch out of five birds nobody thinks a sparrow is worth anything or significant but jesus says not one of them is forgotten before god and if god cares about the sparrows doesn't he care about you and then jesus says even the very hairs of your head are numbered do you know how many hairs you have on your head did you count this morning when you were combing your hair no you didn't you don't know how many hairs you have do you know how many hairs i have no? Do you care how many hairs I have? No, I don't either. I really don't care. But God knows, and He does care. He, he, he knows how valuable and important you are. So, so where is this fear coming from? God knows more about you than you know about yourself. And therefore, He's going to protect and preserve and care for you in infinitely more ways than you can even realize. So the question of Jesus is, why are you so anxious? Why do you fear? What are you worried about? Jesus moves from there to another fear, the fear of being ashamed, the fear of looking foolish, the fear of saying the wrong thing. Verse 8, Jesus says, "'Also I say to you, "'whoever confesses me before men, "'him the Son of Man will also confess "'before the angels of God.'" But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The devil loves nothing more than for you to feel tongue-tied and to feel awkward or clumsy when talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and for you to lose confidence and lose heart that the Bible is true. He wants you to speak up and feel stupid for doing so. He wants you to feel embarrassed and think, you know what, I shouldn't have done that. Boy, I'll never do, I'll never do that again. But Jesus says, you can know that whenever you speak up for me, I'm speaking up for you. You confess my name before men, Jesus says. I confess your name before God and his angels. Satan wants you to be trapped by this social anxiety that keeps you quiet and shy and withdrawn. Jesus says, you're never going to disappoint me by speaking up. You're never going to say the wrong thing. You're never going to confuse things. You are only going to honor and glorify my name. So I don't want you to worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to answer because I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Especially, Jesus says, if you're being brought before magistrates and and leaders and religious persecutors, your mind is going to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And I will give you the words you need to say. You think, boy, I don't, I don't know if I could ever do that. You read about some of the martyrs and some of the wonderful things that they were able to do and accomplish and say. You read about uh, Paul in various places when he's called before magistrates and you think, oh man, boy, I could, I could never do that. My, I would be so afraid and I don't think I could articulate a single thing. You know what? The Lord Jesus says, don't worry about it. I'll give you what you need to say in that moment. I know you can. Jesus says, I know you can. Don't be afraid. But if you refuse to confess me, Jesus says, if you deny me, I'm going to deny you. And moreover, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that's not going to be forgiven. If you speak a word against me, Jesus says, you can be forgiven, but don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Now, we really need a lot more time to spend on this, but I'm uh, I'm going to have to save this for another day, but suffice it to say, you know, some some very sensitive souls read this, and wonder, have I ever committed the unforgivable sin? Uh, but but what he's talking about is not something you could just do on accident, right? You you can't just wake up in the morning and fall out of bed and commit the unforgivable sin. That's not, you can't do this on accident. And if your conscience is tender enough and sensitive enough to be concerned about committing a sin like this, I guarantee you haven't committed it. (laughs) If uh, that's evidence that you haven't. What, What he's talking about, what Jesus is talking about here and in other gospels, where he says something similar, he's talking about denouncing or denying or resisting the Holy Spirit. He says, you might misunderstand what I'm doing and you might misunderstand what I'm doing, Jesus says, and later you understand a light bulb goes on and you're forgiven of your misunderstanding. But if you resist and deny and blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you're rejecting the very source of faith, the very source of conviction, the very source of repentance. So so in context here, there are those who are afraid of what men might do to them And because they're so terrified of persecution, they then reject the Holy Spirit and and say all kinds of exaggerated wild things about God and his word to demonstrate, no, I'm not going to submit to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, as long as you remain in that spot, as long as you resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit, no, there's no forgiveness for you. That's the only only route. Jesus is interrupted at this point by someone who is hoping that he'll settle a dispute. Verse 13, one from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. If uh, you've ever taught a class, sometimes you'll be teaching and somebody will raise a question that's so completely off the topic that you think, how do I get this back on track? Well, this, this is really out of left field. And that's what Jesus does here. In the middle of this teaching, a young man comes up and insists, Jesus, you need to sort out this complicated inheritance dispute. You know that in Israel, land was not just property it wasn't just real estate; occupation and possession of the land was a sign of God's blessing and failure. You don't move the landmarks around. You you don't uh, sell the land. You can rent it for a time, but it comes back at a at another time. So this was a big deal. You want your inheritance. You want what's coming to you. And this man, distressed, asked Jesus, "Sort this out out for us." We see that you have some authority here. Well, Jesus answered on first blush would have sounded pretty off-putting, pretty dismissive. Jesus says, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? I'm, I'm not a lawyer who settles land disputes, but there is something you need to know and something all of you need to know. God is changing all this business with the land of Israel. We aren't doubling down on our connection to this place, this land. All land is going to be sanctified. All land is going to be holy land. The whole earth is the promised land. The the place I want my people to possess and thrive in is the whole earth. So since things are changing here, you need to not cling to those things that are going away. Repent of all covetousness. Then to get them back on track, he tells them this parable of the rich fool. In the parable Jesus tells, a wealthy farmer has an amazing harvest. His barns are full and he has no place to put everything he's received. So he decides to pull down his barns and build bigger ones. This will solve his problem, and he says, "I can kind of relax and enjoy my wealth for many years." What's striking in the parable is how many times this how, how many times this farmer uses the word "my" and "I" over and over and over. He uses the word "my" four times, "I" eight times. He's talking about himself to himself. Who talks this way? "My soul," you know, uh, uh, "you've got many goods laid up for many years." Who who does this? Well obviously a self-centered, arrogant sort. He's not considering how he might use his, his wealth and this good blessing to serve other people. He's not factoring in how to invest his wealth wisely in the community. How might others be served by this great bounty? Are there others who are gonna go hungry for lack of food while I have these great silos full of grain He never gives thanks to God who gave him this harvest, nor does he factor into things the fact that his very life is on loan from God. So on that night, God calls the note on his life. And God says, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Now, who's going to be the beneficiary of all your stuff? Jesus says, this is the way it is for everyone who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So in other words, what kind of rich do you want to be? Rich in the kinds of things you build up and then leave for someone else when you die? Uh, Things you leave for your children to fight over, like this young man and his brother? Or are you going to be rich in the way that God defines rich? Rich in mercy, rich in friends, rich in compassion, rich in the joy of the Savior and all his good gifts. It's really two drastically different ways of living that Jesus is describing. So, the man represents, this rich farmer in the parable represents a greed that can never have enough, a greed that is never satisfied, that is shot through with the worry, this underlining fear that he won't have enough, that God won't provide, that God is not faithful to give you what you need. So, Jesus turns back to his disciples. And he instructs them to reject all of this. Now, I'm going I'm to read the next uh, 10 or so verses and we'll, we'll end uh, with that section. The reason I'm taking such a big bite today is I, I do want to make some progress in Luke's gospel. And the, all of this goes together. It all really does fit together. So let's read from verse 22 forward. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you're then not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? "'Consider the lilies, how they grow. "'They neither toil nor spin. "'And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory "'was not arrayed like one of these. "'If then God so clothes the grass, "'which today is in the field "'and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, "'how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? "'And do not seek what you should eat "'or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. "'For all these things the nations of the world seek after, "'and your Father knows that you need these things.' But seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags, which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's very simple and it's very plain. Do not be anxious for your life. Sure, you can make reasonable plans about what you're going to cook for dinner Tuesday night, what you're going to to wear next week, what you're going to need and when you're going to need it and how you're going to get it. But don't be consumed over worry about these things. Jesus says, look at the ravens, those big black annoying birds that don't have farms. They don't don't put food back for tomorrow and they eat. How much more value are, are you? He says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? And the language there might have a double meaning. It might either mean, how many of you by worrying can add a a few inches to your height? Can you do that? Can you really stress and worry really hard and be taller tomorrow? You can't. Or it might mean, which of you by worrying can add an hour or two to his life? Can you stress and worry and add a week to your life? By worry, by stress. How about an hour? Can you add a minute to your life? Now, can you shorten your life by worry? Can you shorten your life by anxiety? Well, yeah, you can do that. But if you can't add the tiniest little thing to your life by worry, by anxiety, if anxiety is not the road to blessing and benefit, Jesus says, why, why are you doing it? Look at the flowers of, of the field, Jesus says. They don't work. flowers, they don't make clothes. And even Solomon in all his glory were not dressed as nicely as they are. The flowers in the field shoot up today and we mow them down tomorrow. And if God clothes them with glory, will he not also clothe you with glory? Don't worry about food and drink and what you're gonna wear. All these things, Jesus says, these are the things that the nations of the world worry about. These are the things the Gentiles care about. But you have a heavenly father who knows what you need. If you didn't believe that there was a compassionate caring, loving creator, superintending the whole cosmos. If you didn't believe that, it would make sense to worry. In fact, if I didn't believe that there was a creator, my father in heaven, covering all of creation and all of time with his love, if I didn't believe that, you might as well put me in a room and throw away the key. I would be out of my mind with anxiety and fear. I... I I, I don't even think I could dress myself. It makes sense to worry if you don't believe in a loving heavenly father, because you have no foundation, you have no narrative, you have no perspective on what is going on. But you, little flock, Jesus says, you don't worry like that. Don't act like you don't have a heavenly father who loves you more than the flowers and more than the birds. Don't act like he uh, doesn't know what's best for you and doesn't give you what he knows you need. So Jesus brings this instruction to close with that gentle statement. Do not fear little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And this is the last fear that he addresses. The fear that God might not do what he says. The fear that God God might not really have your best interest in mind. That he might not really love you. God might not really be the kind of father who, who wants to do good for his children. He doesn't want to be gracious to me, I'm afraid, because, because he's angry or maybe because he's disinterested or maybe he has more important things to do than love me. Or, or maybe if he is good to me, maybe it's kind of a begrudging, a forced good. Maybe he's like a judge who, uh, who has to let somebody off on a technicality. You know, I just, I just kind of slipped out uh, and, and, and he has to roll his eyes and say, well, okay, you got out of this one. And so, yeah, I'll let you go if it has to be that way. That's not our heavenly father. None of it is. Jesus destroys this line of thinking by saying, it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants for you to rejoice and love and be happy in all that he has given you. It is his good pleasure to see you with a smile and to be content. It is his good pleasure to see you rejoice and to enjoy everything that is his. So much that he, he wants you to be generous as well. You can sell the stuff you don't need, Jesus says. You can give alms, you don't need to fret about money. Don't be nervous about giving because God has more resources to give you than you can give away. He, he's got more to reward you and love you with than you can ever give away in a lifetime. And he says those two things that are so critical. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. You invest in what you love. Do you wanna know what you love? Check your bank statement. That's what you love. Whatever whatever you love is reflected there. Look at your checkbook. And, And the call of Jesus is to put the kingdom of God first before everything. Whatever we prioritize over the kingdom of God, we lose. Nothing is more important than his kingdom. Well, let me try to quickly, quickly uh, wrap this up. We are an anxious people. We are a fearful people. Generally speaking, as moderns, as Americans, even as evangelicals, we are an anxious people. And what that indicates is that we are invested in all the wrong things. Our investments are in shaky stocks. And uh, we are reaching out in the darkness, in fear, and taking the hand of false saviors. We are taking the hand of false deliverers to lead us out of the darkness and into a place of safety. And those false saviors inevitably fail us. They weren't designed to save us. They weren't designed to deliver us. They were designed to fool us. They were designed to trick us. So when you are anxious, and when you are afraid, and when you are fearful, reach out, yes, but take the hand of the Father who is the only one who can deliver you. He's the only one who cares for you. He's the only one who knows you and who knows what you need. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are just such a father, that you do care, that you do clothe the field with glory and that you care for the birds. And so looking at those things, we know, indeed, you care for us. We are your children. We're your precious possession, your treasure, and so may we rest in this, especially this day. Uh, Father, help us in, in, uh, in any time where there's uh, persecution or trouble or tribulation, that we might not forget this, but seal this to our hearts now and cause us to trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.